Move, counter move, detect, prevent, and defense. Being a CISO is like waging a never-ending chess game against players you don't know, can't see, and attack without warning. On this podcast, cybersecurity experts from Zscaler's Office of the CISO have a pragmatic dialogue on cyber risks, current attacks, and security trends. Welcome to the CISO's Gambit. Hi, Brad Moldenhauer here for another edition of the CISO's Gambit. Danny Connolly, good morning. Good morning, gentlemen. Mark Lewick, good afternoon. Good afternoon to you. And so whatever it was we were going to talk about has, of course, been superseded by the events of the last week. And of course, I am talking about the Colonial Pipeline incident. And Mark, I can imagine from the United Kingdom, that has drawn a few crikeys. And of course, the release of the presidential executive order. So gentlemen, to get this uh, session kicked off, you know, obviously critical national infrastructure was involved here. So open-ended question, was this a targeted attack? I'm going to step right in here. And and I want to point out that this is opinion. I don't know anything, um, some, any secret sauce or any, any information about the motivation here. <clears throat> but it strikes me that this is like every other ransomware attack out there. And that they get a beachhead into an organization through, uh, you know, phishing or some exposed device or anything like that. And once they are inside, they are looking for that which makes your business tick, that which will make you hurt. And if you happen to be running petroleum across the eastern seaboard, it's not a surprise to me that they're going to hit that if they can. You know, I'm not sure anyone could actually answer that question, but the attackers themselves um, I mean, the FBI attributed the attack to the dark side rans- ransomware group, um, but they're obviously in it to make money. And the Colonial Pipeline generates a ton of money, uh, meaning f- a $5 million ransom payment is certainly a drop in the bucket compared to uh, the amount of money they're bringing in. Uh, we certainly know uh, through TTPs used by DarkSide that they are known for exploiting vulnerabilities in publicly exposed services. That said, I, I agree with Mark. Um, it was probably more of a target of opportunity, but not a targeted attack, which is much different. That's a really great point, Danny. The, the dark side ransomware for hire group have specifically said, we're not going to target education. We're not going to target healthcare. We're not going to, you basically, we're no go for these areas. From an understanding of what the impact of this att- this may have had, they probably don't care or didn't know. I guarantee they knew what Colonial Pipeline was for the United States. Uh, What they didn't know is that the pipeline would shut down as a precautionary uh, measure. So the fact that this group was able to not only get a foothold, move laterally throughout the network in order to obtain uh, important business information, encrypt, exfil that information, and then the owners of the pipeline as a precaution shut down the pipeline. How are the SCADA networks at risk from this? You you can't let one foothold turn into a enterprise breach to the point where uh, that would impact your uh, SCADA systems and proactively shut them down to me is is really shocking. Like this is considered US critical infrastructure. 
I agree. And the same is in play outside of the U.S. as well. Those same levels of attacks, you know, the NHS here in the U.K. was crippled through a ransomware attack, not Petya, as a matter of fact, um, and several years ago. It does happen, and we know it happens. That is clearly an accident or an incidence of bycatch, where that was not what they were intending to, to attack. But the, the point here is that this was captured. This did happen. So no matter where you are in the world, Critical national infrastructure does exist. And whether it's protected specifically or protected just because those are important businesses, it doesn't really matter. They're still possible for them to be targets. Guys, yeah, that uh, some excellent points there. And, um, you know, something that's really, you know, kind of that I'm, I'm, I'm giving thought to based upon listening to uh, both of your perspectives on this is that, look, we know threat actors have become keen on leveraging ransomware for obvious reasons related to uh, its output success with financial gain and the ability to use various intrusion vectors, which I think is fascinating after you know kind of hearing your debate as to was this targeted or was it just uh, you know opportunistic, right? So you know, let's kind of generalize this a little bit and, and talk about some of the safeguards that, you know, organizations need to be uh, considering to reduce their risk of a, a ransomware threat. Thanks for that, Brad. <clears throat> I think it's a really important point to say that ransomware is the current bogeyman of the cybersecurity world, right? Or boogeyman if you're American again. Um, and it is virulent and it is difficult to protect against because of what you just said, that there's more than one point of entry. There's more than one way of delivering that package. There's more than one way to actually get what you want. You don't have to just aim for one thing, but that doesn't mean we're defenseless. There are a series of basic security capabilities and controls that you can put in place that will drastically reduce the likelihood and the impact of a ransomware event. So Danny, uh, after kind of you know, hearing what Mark said, I mean, and again, going back to, you know, what I was given thought to where we've got these various intrusion vectors. So anything from, you know, spear phishing campaigns to, you know, exploits of commonly used in legacy technologies. Yes, I'm looking at you, VPN and RDP. I mean, what have you seen to kind of protect those specific uh, channels? So SCADA systems or ICS systems, um, OT devices, you know, basically, control levers, switches, sensors, um, you know, manufacturing equipment, uh, things that aren't typical computers. There are more relays and, 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 and such that control things like the pipeline. Um, you know, obviously segmenting those and ensuring they can't just communicate with the traditional business networks is uh, what I've seen when I've inspected uh, certain power administration sites. Danny, I, I, I completely agree, but I want to say two things. One is that since the 90s, we've been driving more towards delivering all of our service capability over common networks. It's, it's, and, and, and to say we shouldn't is great, and it's a wonderful message, and it's, it, it's noble. But when we're all driving to reduce costs, the idea of having um, uh, a person who's on site who can manage a piece of, uh, of equipment and every site, it's just no longer really working. So there have been these economies to say, let's connect it to the internet. I'll give you an example of, you know, maybe engines on boats and or or uh, or other pieces of of important um, measuring machinery across multiple multiple sites. 
Connecting them to the internet allows an organization to support many with one or small set of resources. And that has been an incredibly important driver. So there are these opposing forces. The force for security has been to say, let's keep these air gaps, let's keep these away. But the force for modernization and, and, and digitalization of our organizations has been pushing the opposite way. And in the gap between those two motions, ransomware has come to, and raised its ugly head. But there are ways to do it securely, right? Like, so, so I've even seen uh, organizations use hotspots or cell cards. Back in the old days, it used to be dedicated, dedicated dial-up connections, right? Uh, separate from that business network. But today, I mean, we're talking 2021, where we have a lot better technology than we did uh, even two years ago, right? You have to keep it updated and evolve those uh, legacy networks to modernize cybersecurity and that, that concern. So I, I think you got, you've hit the nail on the head. <clears throat> and for me, I'm gonna encapsulate everything you said by two little words that I both loathe and love, and those are zero trust. Zero trust, of course, can mean anything a technology vendor wants it to mean, but what, it, what I really wanna get across, and the part I love about it, is it's a philosophy. And the philosophy that says, I do not trust a thing implicitly anymore. I don't, I want to, um, I want to move towards explicitly trusting things. If something is in my environment, <clears throat> does it have any more access than it needs? Does it, is it, do you understand the identity that's trying to drive that action? Zero trust as a philosophy suggests an assumed breach footprint that you already assume that you're in your environment. And how do you array your controls and how do you manage your estate if you assume that they're already there? And it changes everything. Spot on, old chap. <laughs> I guess switching up to the executive order that was released on the 12th, you, you know, that executive order and, and the, the planning for how to improve our, our uh, the United States cybersecurity posture has been uh, in progress for quite some time. Uh, but obviously with the colonial pipeline breach uh, or ransomware event that, that expedited it. And there's certain language within that executive order specific to um, not only government institutions, but also public and private companies. More importantly, the executive order in the definition section has the term zero trust architecture and what it means, which I really, really liked. But it has all the key aspects. Um, assume that you're compromised. Uh, eliminate implicit trust in any one element. Granular risk-based controls, security automation uh, at all aspects of, of infrastructure. Uh, don't forget about some of the supply chain uh, mandates that might be coming out of that as well. I think those are really important. And it's it's not just the U.S. government who's t starting to take things a bit seriously as well. The U.K. government uh, this week just released a, uh, a an open consultation um, on the Computer Mis Misuse Act of 1990. They are also seeking support and seeking information from the industry and from academia, etc., to figure out does this law meet the needs of, of today? Does this law really enforce and help us against um, the cybersecurity threats we're meeting in 2021? It is a 30-year-old law. Yeah. Well, you know, fascinating perspective, both on, you know, uh, ransomware protections and, you know, some of... Um, some of the uh, recent uh, orders that are coming out of, uh, you know, the United Kingdom in the United States. And Danny, thank you for that trip down memory lane where, uh, you know, talking about, you know, industrial control systems with dedicated circuits. It just, I don't know, it conjectured up memories of a speakeasy DSL running a turbine. But... <laughs> 
Um, you know, uh, one final question here. And, you know, Mark, you might have some perspective on this, but Danny, obviously you being, um, you know, our federal guru with, uh, within the uh, uh, greater group here. One of the things that I, I'm, you know, trying to understand is, look, I, I know what the role of CISA is within, you know, Homeland Security, but, you know, correct me if I'm wrong in saying this, but I do not believe CISA was notified immediately from the Colonial Pipeline. What are your thoughts on that? And Mark, if you have some, you could certainly weigh in as well. Danny, why don't you? You know, we're in? a week later. I, I mean, it's shocking to me as well. Uh, we're we're a week in, and we don't have the specific vector used or uh, any real details or attack timeline, right? And and that's that's critical. Um, you know, not only the threat intel sharing, meaning what IOCs were used that could uh, help other entities, you know, search their environment to see if they're also breached, but but more importantly of like just the initial vector, right? You see different rumors going around of, hey, there could have been a, a RDP service exposed to the internet or uh, could be a phishing attack uh, with a picture of bikinis that somebody clicked on that led to the initial, uh, initial foothold. And the fact that we don't know is a problem, especially since CISA is the cybersecurity arm of the United States government has dedicated experts to that, that as a part of their mission are hunt. They have a hunt team or a hurt team as uh, they call them. And they come in and they help you uh, respond and deal with this kind of incident. So, right. They, they seem to me to be, you know, the preeminent incident handlers, if you will, for the federal government. So yeah, I found that quite astonishing myself. So, Danny, you know, I've got to translate this from my own environment here, <clears throat> um, but I do think that what we're really talking about is mandatory notification law, uh, and and you know, it, I am also aware that in the U.S. it's far more complicated. The FBI has a has a cybersecurity wing. The CISA has a security wing. And NSA has a cybersecurity wing. Everybody's fighting in there, but that's all kind of friendly over here. We have the NCSC. Uh, and that's you know part of GCHQ, and we have a lot of letters in that sentence. <laughs> but the point here is that mandatory notification has to be streamlined, has to be made simpler. It is not as it used to be in the late '90s and all the through the 2000s, where everyone thought to hide evidence of a breach from their market, from their competitors, from everyone. Everyone that that, and I think it's a human nature. We want to hide something bad happened to us, and we we go into the corner. We are all part, interdependent parts of the larger economy. And cybersecurity is not uh, a specific problem for one industry. It is across industries. And we are only going to get better at this if we all have the information and learn from it as quickly as possible. And I think that uh, we need to move towards more clear notification rules. And, and that's where the uh, executive order that was released on the 12th, uh, Section 2, is removing barriers to sharing threat information. It includes IT, OT service providers, uh, includes cloud. It covers everything to include uh, government and uh, s specific private entities, such as Colonial Pipeline. And I, and I have a feeling that, you know, CISA not being notified in a timely manner in this instance certainly drove some of that language in the uh, in the executive order. Okay, gentlemen, and that is bringing us near the conclusion of this episode of the CISO's Gambit. But before we depart, um, Danny, any final words? 
Just a few things. Um, you know, next week we're going to have uh, two special guest speakers for our podcast episode. We're going to actually go a little deeper um, with the Threat Labs report that was released yesterday, which is fascinating on double extortion uh, ransomware events. And coming in June, we have uh, CISA Tick program manager Sean Conley joining us to talk about uh, Tick 3.0 and kind of the game changing aspects of that. Gentlemen, fascinating perspective as always. And that will conclude this episode of The CISO's Gambit. Until next time, thank you, listener. Thanks for listening to The CISO's Gambit with Brad Moldenhauer and Danny Connolly. Check back with your podcast provider regularly for more episodes. Brad and Danny are both CISOs at Zscaler. You can find their profiles on LinkedIn or reach out to them and other CXO transformation leaders in the Zscaler CXO community LinkedIn group. Zscaler is a zero trust exchange cloud security provider for some of the largest companies on the Forbes Global 2000. Find out more about Zscaler at zscaler.com. Copyright 2021.